this week on the Backtable podcast. And so I, I think that's also the tension between thinking about things from a true medical perspective versus a public health and kind of person-driven perspective. For example, in the HERE's, you know, randomized controlled trial, our primary endpoint is not number of devices fit or number of, you know, what, how much they gained from their devices. They are things like communication function, social isolation, depression, those are the outcomes that we're looking at that that matter. Um, so I think that kind of shift in perspective and focus of what is the big picture? Why do we do what we do? Why do we want to provide the care we, we think everybody should and have need access to? Um, so I think that's a, a big part of it as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist at UT Southwestern here in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Ashley Agan, and I'm a general ENT practicing in an academic setting at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. We are your hosts, and we're so glad you stopped by to check out the podcast today. How's it going, Gopi? It's going good. I got the sinus a little bit today, but I did a rinse and I feel like I'm prepared <laughs> and less nasally. So I'm ready. Awesome. It's, you know, podcast Saturdays. It's always good. It's always good. Uh, we have a great guest today. Um, I'll go ahead and introduce Dr. Carrie Neiman. She is an otologist at Johns Hopkins, a core faculty member at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health's Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health and a founding member of Access Hears, which is a social enterprise that provides affordable, accessible hearing care through a sustainable community-delivered model. She's here today to talk to us about improving access to hearing care services. Welcome to the show, Dr. Carrie Neiman. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> We're super excited. Um, we would love for you to just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your practice. So like you said, I'm an otologist at Johns Hopkins. I practice at the East Baltimore campus, the main campus of Hopkins, but I'm also um, practicing at the Bethesda location. I see patients for kind of the full spectrum of kind of medical and surgical needs related to hearing loss with a particular emphasis on age-related hearing loss and also a little bit of a focus on eustachian tube dysfunction, which is, I know, not what we'll be talking about today, but just to, to put that out there too. Awesome. Your research, you have some interesting, um, you know, background as far as working with, you know, in the world of disparities to access to, to hearing care services. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of set the stage to talk about that for us? You know, what are the statistics? You know, why do we need to know and care? Yeah. So a lot of my work is focused um, in the, the space of, of age-related hearing loss. Um, and a lot of it really comes from a public health perspective. And I think that's something that will come up kind of time and time again, um, is trying to think through things from that public health perspective versus from that kind of medical one-on-one -on -one perspective that we may use in a clinical setting day in, day out. So when we think about hearing loss overall, when we are thinking about the U.S., we know that there's around 38 million individuals who have some degree of hearing loss. And when we think about who in particular has hearing loss, we know that the vast majority of individuals are older adults and that the vast majority have a mild to moderate degree of hearing loss. So among those 38 million older, I should say, 
30 million Americans, we know that 29 million are older Americans. So 60 years and older. So a vast majority, again, of those who have hearing loss are older adults. And the vast majority is mild to moderate hearing loss. And so can we go further back in terms of setting the stage? Um, we said 28 million. 30 over, million. Uh, yeah. But 28 yeah. of 20, those are older. Over 29. Six, 29. 29 yeah. Yeah. Over yeah. Sorry. Six. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. So that's a large percentage of older Americans. And when you say mild to moderate hearing loss, can you tell us sort of what that means or the impact of that in an older individual? So, you know, mild to moderate, we're, you know, thinking about individuals, you know, who may kind of only notice their hearing loss when they're in kind of a loud, you know, kind of background noise, you know, at a restaurant, a party, and they're kind of struggling. Or, you know, as we all kind of encounter in a clinical setting, you know, all, you know, I don't have hearing loss. Everybody else is mumbling. Um, it's, you know, solidly those individuals who may or may not even recognize that they have a hearing loss. And I think that's what's really important to and make what I think we all struggle with in terms of talking with people about their hearing loss, particularly age-related hearing loss, when it's this slow, gradual process, it's others, it's not me. Um, there's a lot that goes into getting people to recognize and think about um, themselves having a hearing loss. The thing that kind of goes alongside that is what we have really spent on the research side of things the past you know, decade or so thinking about, you know, does this age-related hearing loss, this mild to moderate hearing loss really matter? Um, and so that's, you know, in the past, we've kind of always thought, ah, doesn't really matter that much. It's this kind of frustrating thing. We kind of all deal with it, you know, whether individually or family, friends. But more and more, we're starting to understand and think about age-related hearing loss in the context of healthy aging. And so in the past decade, it's really shifted how we think about it. So, you know, time and time again, um, through study after study, I think what's gotten the most attention is thinking about hearing loss and its association with things like accelerated cognitive decline, dementia, you know, and I think study after study shows this association that, you know, for individuals with mild hearing loss, they have a two times increased risk of incident dementia. You know, when it's a moderate loss, it's about a three times increased risk and severe loss, five times increased risk. You know, and we obviously there's a lot that we still need to learn and understand about that particular association. But, you know, when I'm counseling, you know, and talking to a loved one about the potential impact of hearing loss, when we're talking about solutions like hearing aids, things that are these low risk, non-pharmacological, non-surgical, you know, they're what the risk benefit ratio is is low. So we have a lot of work to do, obviously, on the, the research side of things to really help fully understand those associations. But I think more and more we're beginning to think that this isn't just this benign part of the aging process. Wow. So that, I mean, that's, those are not small numbers when thinking about risk, when thinking mm -hmm. about something as significant as cognitive decline and dementia and things like that. So, you know, we're thinking about this 29 million that have mild to moderate hearing loss. I mean, what, what are your thoughts as far as how many of those people would benefit from some sort of amplification? Maybe yeah. All? Yeah. So I think that's there. And I will say just for there are many, you know, individuals kind of thinking and working in the space of, you know, the connection, the potential connection between hearing loss and, you know, cognitive decline. I will say the big thing that we don't have yet is we don't know for sure whether giving somebody, you know, hearing aids or amplification 
whether that can slow the process, um, we don't know that yet. So that work is is ongoing in terms of a larger randomized control trial that's now ongoing five sites across the country, the ACHIEVE trial based in part out of Hopkins. Um, we won't have those results till 2022-2023. Um, so everything that we're talking about right now, you know, we, we have uh, kind of a a guess and a direction, um, but we don't know for sure specifically on the the cognitive impairment kind of connection side of things. I think there's also um, differences in thinking about who can benefit from amplification. Um, and so whether or not do we start talking about amplification, you know, at a moderate level, or does it really depend on, you know, how much um, it's impacting them? You know, we know that it takes you know, on average, seven to nine, seven to 10 years for people when they actually first become aware of their hearing loss to actually start using a hearing aid. So I will say, you know, for even the patients who have a mild degree, I, I touch them and say, you know, it's never too early to start at least thinking about it, because especially as we think about over-the-counter devices, and if we think about, oh, maybe you're just getting a little bit of a boost when you're out at a restaurant, you know, because you need that a little bit extra, you know, amplification in that particular setting, you know, just starting to think about amplification in some targeted areas, I think, can be helpful and can be useful as people start to say, oh, maybe it is helping me and then kind of go along the way as their hearing may change over time and may hopefully be a little bit more open to thinking about using, you know, amplification devices, hearing aids, things like that. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And to me, there's one conversation about you're a candidate and you could probably benefit, but then obviously there's that gap of who's actually then able to attain those services. Mm -hmm. And, and that's why you're here yeah. <laughs> to talk to us so that we can kind of understand the disparities that exist in access to hearing aids. Can you, before we get into that, sure, there's a lot of terminology that we use. Can you just define or, or explain is there a difference between when we say equity versus equality? What disparity? What are we thinking about? Yeah. yeah. It's easy to kind of kind of think you know what you're talking about, but are all these words interchangeable? Yeah. So if we channel, um, you know, kind of what terminology is used within social epidemiology, so kind of the specific field that really thinks about and tries to understand what are the drivers behind differences in outcomes or differences in care. We can think about these terms kind of very specifically. And so when first, when we think about disparities and we use the term disparities, we are talking about things um, that, that are differences along potentially different lines like race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status or socioeconomic position. When we use the term disparities, we are not implying that we know or understand the driver or the cause behind those differences. When we use the term like inequity, inequity implies that we do believe that there is a reason or a cause behind those differences or disparities that we are seeing by race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and that it has to do with kind of unequal access injustices, social, you know, injustices that that are the drivers. So when we use disparities, again, kind of a overall, um, you know, discussion of, of differences by things like race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status. But when when we say something like there's an, an equity, there is some judgment and some kind of moral judgment that you are making or implying when you use that term in particular. And do you, do you have a sense of 
you know, what percentage of this, these 29 million older Americans that have hearing loss are actually getting some sort of, you know, services for that? Yeah, yeah. So based on um, some numbers from a few years back, um, before kind of that 29 million number came out, the working numbers when we thought just about older adults with hearing loss was around 26 million at that time a few years back had a clinically significant degree of hearing loss. And only about 3 million of those or so would actually, you know, use hearing aids. So around, you know, 23 million older Americans, you know, go untreated. Um, and again, we're talking about in that particular statistic counting individuals who do have a mild degree of hearing loss or greater. Um, so those are some of the numbers that that we've kind of used in the past. So overall, only around 15 to 20 percent of older Americans actually use hearing aids. When we start to look at things like by race, ethnicity or socioeconomic status, when we look at African-American older adults in the U.S. who have a clinically significant hearing loss, only around 10 percent use hearing aids versus around 20 percent um, among white older adults with hearing loss. And what do you think are some of the factors that make these disparities happen? So I, I think one of the places that we often go as, as physicians um, and kind of that medical model, that medical approach, is I think we often think about these types of things uh, from an individual perspective. We think about these things as individual health behaviors. And we certainly know that there is a lot that goes into somebody's ability and willingness to use hearing aids or to engage in some kind of health behavior you know, on an individual level. But I think the thing that we also need to be thinking about um, and recognizing that these health behaviors happen within a context in terms of a social structural context. So thinking at a societal level and community level as well. So I certainly think, you know, for our individuals who are thinking about hearing aids, yes, it is, you know, things like how many trips to back and forth to the doctor does it take? How many co-payments? You know, yes, obviously the financial realities of hearing needs um, this day and age, I think certainly is part of it, as well as things like what's, you know, the the health literacy involved in terms of thinking about being able to, to you know, read and navigate hearing aid manuals. We know on average hearing aid manuals are written at around a 10th grade reading level, far above the recommended sixth grade reading level. Um, again, these are like individual level factors and there's plenty of them. In addition to things like, you know, where where is your local audiologist or your local ENT um, in your community? Um, how many of your friends and family members, you know, have hearing aids? These are all some of the varied things. And I think that while there, we all want kind of a single explanation for why differences exist, I think it's one of those things we're just starting to, you know, have more and more understanding of the fact first that these differences exist, much less kind of getting into and digging in of what are all of the different drivers um, that go into to what we're seeing in terms of disparities. Right. Which makes a lot of sense, because if it was if it was one reason, then we probably would have, you know, solved it by now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Or, yeah, we wouldn't even be, you know, for things like diabetes or hypertension or cancer, you know, these, you know, where millions and millions of dollars have gone into not only understanding and addressing these differences, um, much less things like hearing care disparities, which in terms of just the number of individuals, um, you know, we Nobody has has figured out, but I think there's a lot we can learn from these other disciplines and other fields to try to help move us along as well. 
in moving through this and trying to kind of help address the, you know, number one, the, the disparities mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, also just overall helping everyone to have more access to these cares. What's the way forward? What are some things that you're, you know, maybe doing or things you've seen in your research or, you know, um, what, what can we do? Yeah, for sure. So a lot of what um, I do in, in my work is just one piece of it is trying to think about how can we develop additional models of care? Because if we look and say, you know, only 15 to 20 percent of our older adults are in general are are using hearing aids, you know, we we're not even scratching the surface. And the thing that I think, you know, many people, it's, it's very easy to say, oh, if it was just covered by insurance, you know, we'd be we'd be fine. Like we would figure it out. If we look at places like the UK and the National Health Service there where they do cover hearing aids, their rates of hearing aid use are, are higher, certainly, but they're not that much higher. They're maybe around 25, 35 percent. Right. So it's not the magic bullet either. So and just like we know that there's many factors that go into reasons why people are willing or not willing to use a device on a regular basis. We need to be thinking about models of care that maybe get at some of those things beyond just the potential cost. I think a lot of us are thinking about, you know, stigma and ageism and all of these kind of complex factors um, that are going into people's decision making processes. And so one of the things as thinking about more models of care is if we, you know, have only so many ENTs and only so many audiologists that we have in the United States to be able to reach all of these individuals. We also need to be thinking about well, what other ways, especially thinking, you know, in other fields like public health, one of the things has been thinking through community health worker models of care, where community health workers is a term, you know, very broadly that is kind of paraprofessionals, individuals who share some, you know, lived experience, you know, some aspect um, of their, of you know, whether same cultural background, same age, same educational background, same, you know, community. Um, and community health workers can be really powerful in addition to all of these additional, you know, models of care in terms of clinic-based care to thinking about how do we reach communities or reach populations that we haven't always been able to reach through kind of this traditional clinic-based approach because, you know, community health workers have a lot more insights into some of the nuances than I may have when I'm sitting and talking and counseling, you know, a patient about all the different reasons why they may or may not want to think about hearing aids, that community health workers can have particular insight and power in having conversations that we're not always as equipped to have. So in terms of um, community health workers, sounds like that's like your front line troop. So are they, what are they responsible for? Is that health, uh, hearing literacy? What is the role? How do you get them in? Yeah, great question. So community health workers can play lots of different roles and they've played lots of different roles in many different settings for many different kind of chronic disease, you know, whether it's, you know, thinking about and talking about um, diabetes management or, you know, high blood pressure management in terms of diet changes, lifestyle changes, all the way to thinking about emergency, you know, care provision um, in low resource settings. So when, what I'm talking about in terms of uh, community health workers and what we do in the Baltimore area is thinking about and training older adult peer mentors. Um, so individuals who have shared lived experiences in terms of their older adults themselves, they may or may not have hearing loss themselves. And so they then 
are able to kind of step through and provide not only counseling around kind of what is age-related hearing loss, some of the, you know, basic oral rehabilitation, things like communication strategies, expectation management about what you can expect from an amplification device, and then actually go through a step-by-step fitting and orientation to an over-the-counter um, amplification device. So that's, you know, some of the work that that we've been working on. I will say others have partnered with community health workers in that model in different ways. One of my colleagues and collaborators, Nicole Maroney at the University of Arizona, she has trained uh, a team of community health workers who work in federally qualified health centers to provide group oral rehabilitation um, to primarily Spanish-speaking older adults along the U.S.-Mexico border. So there's a lot of different ways in which to partner with, but it's just been an area that has been very much untapped um, in, in the space of thinking about how do we address age-related hearing loss when we will never have enough um, ENTs, enough audiologists to, to really get at and, and be able to help individuals connect with the technology that they need. What does that look like, um, like with a group, you know, rehab situation? Like how, how would you kind of set a, a patient's expectations for what that's going to be like? So Dr. Maroney's work, um, they have a team of, I want to I say maybe like five, six um, older adult, like promotoras, um, who um, have a very kind of structured curriculum that they go through. I want to say it's five to six weeks or so. Her program is called Oyendo Bien, and they are overseen by an audiologist. Um, but a lot of that is very focused on just oral rehabilitation. So thinking about how do you live well? with hearing loss. Um, and we certainly, you know, know education and counseling is a big part of managing hearing loss. Um, but the other part of that in terms of actually connecting people with devices, that is something that differentiates our program in Baltimore in terms of the HEARS program and the HEARS study is that it does have that element of education and counseling, but then more importantly, older adult peer mentors are fitting other older adults with over-the-counter hearing technology. Can you actually, this is probably a good time to kind of tell us about the research and then the nonprofit side of HEARS because they're different. Yeah, yeah, okay. for sure. HEARS is, uh, when I use the term HEARS, HEARS stands for Hearing Health uh, Equity Through Accessible Research and Solutions. That's the, the acronym. And so HEARS is a structured program around one and a half, two hours that was developed by myself and team um, at Hopkins a number of years back is this structured way in which it's designed for community health worker. Again, that term used broadly where, you know, now we're working primarily with older adult peer mentors who then go through kind of that one and a half, two hours of here's some basics around age-related hearing loss. Here's some basics communication strategies. Let's get you set up with an over-the-counter device. And so that one and a half, two-hour program is a, is a structured program that, you know, we've completed initial pilot study a few years back. And what we found in that pilot study was for those individuals who went through the study and three months afterward, as compared to a weightless control, had about the same improvements in communication function that we would see with gold standard hearing aids fit by an audiologist. And that's compared, you know, using over-the-counter devices in a two-hour structured program. And so we are now at the tail end of finishing an, a larger randomized control trial. We had 13 sites throughout Baltimore City and County, eight older adult peer mentors who are overseen by two audiologists. And those eight older adult peer mentors talked with FIT um, 151 older adults um, 
with hearing loss um, and took them through the the HEARS program. Um, so we are anxiously awaiting the, the results uh, for the randomized controlled trial, um, but we are really excited um, to be able to continue building the evidence for for not only over-the-counter technology, but really the power of paraprofessionals, community health workers in partnering with us to reach communities that we haven't always been able to reach. That's awesome. And then the there's Access Hears, which you were one of the, the founding members of. Tell us about that and you know, what led you to kind of get that going. Yeah. So when I was initially kind of designing and, and forming the Hears Intervention or Hears program in the research context, I was, you know, thinking, looking around. And, you know, the reality is, is again, this is a low risk intervention. You know, we're using over-the-counter technology, things that are already readily available to any consumer out there. And why does it need to take as long as it does to get into wider practice? You know, we know on average that it takes 17 years to go from bench to bedside in terms of from that kind of initial discovery to getting something into widespread practice. And 17 years, I feel like, is is pretty unacceptable when we're talking about, again, this low-risk type of intervention. And we know that these dis- Differences in care exist that we know are beginning to understand that hearing loss really matters for older adults. So why not try and move that needle a little bit faster? Um, so and was accepted through the the Johns Hopkins like incubator program, which was called the Social Innovation Lab. And so during that time, you know, I'm sitting around with, you know, at that time I was a, a resident and sitting with, you know, undergraduates and graduate students and other people who f- knew far less about the area that they were thinking about making this like big, you know, change and and thinking through like, how am I going to change X, Y, or Z? And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, you know, why not? Like, if they could do it, like, I could do it too. <laughs> so, so we, you know, we started the nonprofit at that point um, with the idea of like, how can we have some experience with the realities of what does sustainability and scalability need to look like in that setting? Obviously, it's important to build the evidence and we're continuing to do that. But how can we jump in a little bit sooner and get some experience and try to, to answer some of these? So, you know, the first thing, you know, that we did, we are really the founder in terms of our grant and support is the ARP Foundation, which has been with us throughout this time um, and then has really been able to help us grow Um into, you know, providing services to older adults throughout, you know, Baltimore and throughout Maryland. We were, you know, a contractor with the the Department of Aging within Maryland as just an example to really think about how do we get more models of care out uh, to older adults. Carrie, can we back up just a little bit and kind of dig into the -the over-the-counter devices? Are we talking like an FM system? What exactly is the community health worker, quote, fitting them with and how are they doing it? Yeah. So uh, the devices that we use currently are PSAPs, personal sound amplifiers uh, products, which are, you know, this gray area of devices that as soon as we have the -the over-the-counter hearing aids legislation kind of designation move all the way through, I, you know, we'll see what happens. But right now in this space, we are using personal sound amplifier products. So I will say from the beginning, you know, all both HEARS and the Access HEARS approach has really been, while we do use specific devices right now, it really is not meant to be these specific devices, but can grow and adapt with the changing market and insert whatever kind of are the latest, greatest devices. So we always offer two different devices and we 
because we try to make this as person-centered and person-driven as possible, it is very much the choice of the individual, which device do they want? And so we always offer a larger device, something like a pocket talker or something that we also use as a super ear SE9000. Both of those devices kind of are a handheld kind of device that then has headphones, you know, wired headphones that go into that kind of palm-sized device. The beauty of that device is that it can be very easy for the individual or care partner to put that device on and off. There's no small buttons. There's just a dial. Um, so in terms of channeling, how do we make it as older adult friendly as possible for older adults who have manual dexterity issues or some limitations in terms of cognitive impairment? That larger device can be very or at least more user-friendly than a smaller ear-level device. So that's always one option. And then the second option we always offer is an ear-level device that does look very similar to a hearing aid. When we've done you know, studies on these devices, because we only use devices that we have studied, looked at in terms of their quality. So we use the SoundWorld Solutions Sidekick or HD100 um, at that device is a Bluetooth device that does do some basic in situ fitting and verification, meaning that it's tailored to some degree, kind of the loss that an individual has. And that device, you know, our team has done studies on and shows that they're very comparable to kind of gold standard hearing aids out there. Um, I think one of the things that we're all anxiously waiting for for over-the-counter hearing aids is to provide some regulation in this space to ensure quality, which hasn't always been the case in kind of this PSAP area. But I will say the devices that we have worked with, we have gone through kind of these testing and things like that. So in terms of the question about, well, what do the peer mentors actually do? So they help kind of, you know, say, you know, for the older adult they're working with, you know, they go through the different options. They say, you know, what do you feel comfortable with? You want to try it on? We talk, you know, they talk through the different options. And for the the ear level device, they do need to go through a process of pairing the device, you know, via Bluetooth. The There is just a little app, like a little program that goes through the, it's an automated program that goes through that kind of fitting process. The beauty and why we chose those devices is that you don't need a smartphone on an ongoing basis in order to use the device, um, that there's ways to interact with the device without having a smartphone. For those who do have a smartphone, that's great. We help them get them paired and set up, but you don't have to rely on those technologies. And I think that's another barrier for many of our older bolts when we're thinking about individuals in particularly in low-income populations who may have different ways in which they interact with technology or are comfortable with technology. How do we get over that technological jump or gap and ensure people can still have access to some of these over-the-counter devices, which a lot of them do rely on smartphones and things like that. So with your um, the bigger models, like the like the Pocket Talker, it's basically just amplification, simple. It's a microphone, yep. speaker, makes things louder. And then you have your other ones that you can tailor a little bit. Exactly. More similar to a hearing aid, but not quite the sophistication. Yeah, I think some of the ways in which they are different, at least currently, and I think the lines are going to continue to blur certainly more and more. Um, some of the things like the the ability to automatically switch between types of settings. So, for example, the devices that we use are great in that they have directional microphones. They have different settings. So, um, you know, if you're in a noisy setting, it, you know, shuts off the side microphone and just, you know, allows you to use the microphone for, you know, things in front of you. So it has some of those same kind of standard features and functionalities that a lot of hearing aids, but agree the sophistication is 
different in terms of it may not be automatically judging and gaining and, you know, things like that. So there's certainly differences. But I think at the end of the day, when we're talking about how do we get more people connected with at least some basic amplification, because we know not everybody is going to want or need at, you know, eight, ten thousand dollar hearing aids, there are still something we can and should be doing. As the lines blur uh, between, I think you're saying between the devices, maybe, and what it may be like with a hearing aid, how has um, audiology been a part of your team? Um, do they help train the community health workers? Like, I would imagine everybody's got the same goal and their expertise are very helpful in terms of how do you how do you know when the FM system's at the right setting or how does it all work? So um, for the Cures side of things, um, the peer mentors are overseen by a team of, of audiologists. So the audiologists are the individuals who first train the older adult peer mentors. That training process involves about eight sessions, hour and a half each, that goes through basics of hearing loss, basics of over-the-counter devices, basics of working with, you know, other individuals kind of in a teaching fashion, um, and then a practicum session where they're kind of certified. And so in the start of the, the program, um, all the peer mentors report back to their audiologist supervisor after each encounter that they have. Um, so they talk about things that they encountered, questions that they had. And then that is generally spaced out to maybe once a week that they're checking in. And then because in terms of when we're partnering with community health workers, paraprofessionals, a big part of that is continuing education and support. Um, we do have monthly gatherings where all the peer mentors get together. We talk about different cases, different things that they wanted to learn more about. And so that we have kind of this ongoing support and communication between the the team of audiologists and the peer mentors. And I think one of the things that we're just, you know, starting to to kind of go through some of the the data and things that we've found is that I would say many of these older adult peer mentors very serious, you know, they take their job very seriously and they definitely view themselves as I, you know, I don't want to say professionals, but they definitely view themselves as as hearing paraprofessionals, you know. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with making sure they feel empowered, the skills that they, you know, need, um, but then also that they feel like they have the support of of a team of audiologists to make them feel comfortable. Um, so I, I think none of these things, when we talk about alternative models of care, are we talking about excluding ENTs, excluding audiologists? And I think that's one of the biggest things that we need to be thinking about is recognizing our role in supporting these models of care as important gatekeepers, because the more that we partner, the more that we can ensure the safety and quality of, of what's going on. Yeah, I think that's a good segue into just the discussion of the controversy around, you know, just, you know, having patients be fitted with over-the-counter hearing aids by their peers and things like that. Can you dive into some of the things that have come up for you as you've been you know, developing this? Sure. I will say I think um, it is certainly controversial in terms of, you know, I, I think people have a lot of different reactions, both when we use over-the-counter devices or even when I'm counseling my patients in clinic, I talk about over-the-counter devices and their role. I, I think there is a lot of hesitation within otolaryngology. I think there's even more within audiology. So not necessarily being an audiologist, I don't know if I've had to bear the brunt of it as much as my audiology colleagues who who have. I think that's when it it does go back to thinking in terms of as a medical you know professional, as a physician, yes, my job is to provide the best care possible to that individual in front of me who is in my clinic. 
But then we also have this, you know, parallel part of thinking in a public health perspective, you know, that we know that there are millions of older adults who are not getting care and who have not, you know, gotten care for for decades now. And we have not moved the needle there. And we need both of these perspectives. So the medical perspective, certainly we need and is part of it. But we also need that public health perspective to understand how are we going to reach those older adults? Um, Because we the reality is, is that we no matter what, there are resource resource constraints. Um, And so how do we make how do we extend resources um, as far as they can go to reach as many individuals? So I think kind of that balancing that tension is is part of it. I think over-the-counter hearing aids, you know, that is coming. Still don't know exactly when, but the beauty of that is that they will at least now be regulated um, in terms of ensuring uh, quality so that, you know, our team's ability is not so much focused on ensuring that we're giving quality devices, but that will at least be something that's out there and standardized. So then let's just make sure what is that process of then connecting every older adult with that device that fits their needs. You know, not everybody wants to come see an audiologist or an ENT for their hearing care needs. So how are we going to meet them where they are in their hearing care journey? So it's not about competing in terms of, you know, one model versus the other model. We just need more models. Um, It's not about stealing one patient from an audiologist or stealing one patient from an ENT it's there are plenty of patients out there who are not getting help and we're just trying to give more options um, and that, you know, starting with one device, using that for maybe a few years or so and being like, yeah, no, I think I need something more. Um, I think, you know, we'll hopefully go right into that. And but yeah, those are some other thoughts. I don't. Yeah. If you <laughs> want me to get further or not. Yeah. I think that's, that's beautifully put. And and I agree with you. You know, I've noticed patients who on their own are like, yeah, I actually, you know, got these, you know, over the counter, you know, devices for a couple hundred dollars. And, and it was it became like a gateway to them getting actual hearing aids because it allowed them to kind of try something for a lower initial upfront cost. And so I, I think that it is important for us to kind of get outside of our little boxes and think about different ways to to take care of patients. Yeah, I think the healthy thing that is is needed is the reality is that, you know, we've had five hearing aid manufacturers now and that the model has been, you know, high quality, kind of low quantity in terms of, you know, and, and that there needs, I think, pressures for that because we need more affordable devices that are also good quality. And I think there is a very healthy pressure. Um, and I think the other side of it is that really for the first time, you know, for over-the-counter hearing aids, it is going to be putting the user, the consumer in the driver's seat of what are the things that you need or want. You know, I will say not all of my older adults want invisible things that they can't interact and touch the buttons with, you know, like that's not everybody shares that. And I think putting the the consumer, the user in that driving driver's seat, at least more than we are currently doing, I think is a very important pressure. Because I will say one of the things that our older adult peer mentors spend more time than you would want to is just helping the older adults actually feel the buttons on their device. And, you know, one of them is like, oh, you know, oh, I I know how to use a tablet. I have a, a stylus. So they actually trained the, their client to use a stylus to be able to change the buttons, you know, on their on their device. And that that 
that type of design is is not is not great, you know. But it's the kind of thing that I'm hoping um, with these types of pressures are are the things that will change in terms of just more options and more high quality options out there. So just to kind of go back to the basic terminology of equitable health. So with this new model, that's like, hey, it's more access to a higher number because we have people that are getting into the community. Mm -hmm. It's not, oh, how are we going to help you pay for a hearing aid? It's how do I get more people to get out there, spread the word and try something that might help? Is that which is that the equitable solution here? When I think about what is equitable, I am thinking about it as, you know, as a as a gerontologist in terms of what are those big picture things that matter in terms of am, you know, am I helping older adults engage in their life or stay engaged and do what they want and need to do on a daily basis? You know, is the device the most perfect you know, setting and fit for them, maybe, maybe not. But if it is a tool that enables them to stay connected, to stay engaged, to do those big picture things that matter to them and matter to aging well, then I think that is a success. And I think that's what equitable hearing care needs to look like. And so I I think that's also the tension between thinking about things from a two medical perspective versus a public health and kind of person driven perspective. We do not, you know, for example, in the HEARS, you know, randomized control trial, our primary endpoint is not number of devices fit or number of, you know, how much they gained from their devices. They are things like communication function, social isolation, depression. Those are the outcomes that we're looking at that that matter. Um, so I think that kind of shift in perspective and focus of what is the big picture? Why do we do what we do? Why do we want to provide the care we we think everybody should and have need access to? Um, so I think that's a, a big part of it as well. Yeah, I think I think that's great. And I think I think in medicine we you know might let perfection get in the way of progress a little bit because. That's just how our brains work. You know, we want we want to fix things to, you know, to the most perfect degree that we can we can make things better. And so it's kind of, you know, it's hard to shift that way of thinking. We need both thinking. We need that tension and we need that back and forth. Yeah. But we we also need to make progress for sure. So as um, practitioners, what are things that we can do on our day to day? Because majority of us are just seeing patients in clinic. Is it more maybe getting our own hearing literacy up to speed in terms of options, taking more time to counsel our patients? How, how do we help our patients in the, on the one-to-one setting? Yeah. So when somebody's seeing us in the office, we, they're already, you know, kind of a, a different group than, than others, right? You know, they have taken the time, effort. They, they, they obviously see the value um, in seeing an audiologist and seeing an ENT um, so it is a little bit of a different, um, but I will say every single time I see a patient, I always talk about multiple options. I, it is not just a discussion about, okay, now go back to see the audiologist, you know, for, for hearing aids that I, I do talk about over the counter devices. And I say, you know, yes, there are are not so great options out there, but there are definitely good options and there's more options that are coming. So I always do provide that. And then I also do always talk about Costco as well. So, um, (laughs) but I do give the spiel, the same spiel to every patient, regardless of 
how they may be presenting in terms of their socioeconomic status, their background, their culture, whatnot. I do give the same spiel to every patient because I say, and I tell them, I just don't want cost or wherever you are in thinking about things to be the reason why you don't get help in terms of thinking about your hearing. So I, I do always talk about the options. So I think getting comfortable with the idea that over-the-counter options exist. Um, and I think talking about them, I think, is an important part of that um, because they are here to stay. They are part of the process. And I think it also helps convey to your patients that your big picture goal is their hearing health, that it's not selling a hearing aid, that it's not, you know, what not in terms of your benefit. So I think it is part of of making sure they have the tools that they need and wherever they may start. Some people are like, definitely, oh my gosh, no, I never want to think about an over-the-counter device. But some may be a little bit more ready or willing to try something out for a little bit um, and then come back and say, yeah, I want more. I want to, you know, I want it to be able to do this X, Y, or Z or whatnot. Um, the other thing that I, I think is a big part of it um, is kind of the education and the resources. You know, I try to regularly talk about the Hearing Loss Association of America and kind of the wealth of resources out there kind of from a consumer perspective, um, because I think that is one of the things that is difficult for many patients, especially, you know, for so many of them who have that mild to moderate degree of hearing loss is that they're not necessarily, you know, first and foremost identifying as somebody with hearing loss, but they could still benefit from kind of the the communication strategies, the supports, the network and things like that that exist out there. Um, so I think raising those types of things um, as, as resources, I think, are an important um, part of it as well. And just for full disclosure, I do sit on the board of the Hearing Loss Association of America. So. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, this, this has been amazing. So thank you for taking the time. Um, any final thoughts, parting words, things that, you know, you just want to make sure that we that we hit? Yeah, I, I think for all of us, um, I think it's it's very easy to kind of respond and be like, oh, my gosh, like things are changing. It's not comfortable. Um, and I think the more we can kind of try to help remind ourselves um, that this is our goal, yes, is always to provide high quality, you know, one-on-one -on -one care to the patients that we see, but to also recognize and think about a powerful role that we have as otolaryngologists, as, as gatekeepers, um, and as the source of, you know, high quality information that, you know, we, we need to think about that power that that has and to not necessarily shut down different avenues that are needed, but to say, how can we partner and how can we support these things? Because that shared goal of how do we get help to more people is something that I think we can all think about and identify. Um, and I think is very, you know, just that we have that commitment to that patient in front of us. We have that commitment to those 38 million um, individuals with hearing loss as well. So I think it's both of those things and it doesn't have to be one or the other. Thank you so much, Carrie. I feel like I've learned so much and also just kind of opened my eyes and my mind on how to view things and how to practice medicine more holistically. Um, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And Carrie, you, um, you are on Twitter, right? If our, if our uh, yes. listeners want to yes, find yeah. you, what's your, what's your <laughs> yeah. handle? Carrie Neiman, N-I-E-M-A-N-M-D. So Awesome. So follow Carrie and big thank you to our listeners. Thanks for checking out the show today, everyone. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. Uh, it's a big help for us, uh, helps us grow, helps you bring it, helps us to bring you more of these podcasts. And you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at underscore backtable ENT. 